All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to gather together as your children, to learn your precious words and the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us the privilege to serve you in this world, to be your messengers. And we ask that you help us do that with integrity and honor, properly representing your son. We ask for your spirit's guidance in this message and all that goes on. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of the spirit. Amen. All right, the difficult passages, believing part three. So on Sunday, we covered a lot of ground, didn't we? It was a long lesson. We all held our bladders pretty well as we were challenged in the beginning. But there was a lot of material to cover. And um, I hope uh, it's something that everybody reviews. And, and this message today is meant to be mainly a review of a lot of precious material. And we'll see what the Spirit has tonight as, um, you know, there's only so much you can cover as, as there was so much uh, ground covered on Sunday. But we'll see. This is what he wants us to hear again. Uh, we saw perspectives from several pastors from the past who taught the Word of God in context and didn't fall into the trap of hyper-categorizing everything. And the more and more I think about it, this is how I think about that approach. They read the Word of God in context, and they said what it said. And they read the Word of God in context, and they said what it said. It, things were not forced together. They were explained as written as best they knew how. And so that type of simple uh, approach seems to be the way of the Spirit. That's where the Spirit's been taking us, uh, away from a complicated, complex mental gymnastics, if you will, in the Scriptures, to the Word of God as it's presented, and any humble heart can take it in and see what the message is, to embrace the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's why we're here. I'm going to do my best to recap Sunday's lesson, and we'll start with sharing some quotes that we saw. So sit back and relax in the beginning here, as there will be a lot on the screen for you. We heard a lot from Charles Spurgeon, and I've selected some of those on salvation. There are some who seem willing to accept Christ as Savior, who will not receive him as Lord. They will not often state the case quite as plainly as that, but as actions speak more plainly than words, that is what their conduct practically says. How sad it is that some talk about their faith in Christ, yet their faith is not proved by their works. Some even speak as if they understood what we mean by the covenant of grace, yet alas, there is no good evidence of grace in their lives but very clear proof of sin, not grace, abounding. 
I cannot conceive it possible for anyone truly to receive Christ as Savior and yet not to receive Him as Lord. One of the first instincts of a redeemed soul is to fall at the feet of the Savior and gratefully and adoringly cry, Blessed Master, bought with thy precious blood, I own that I am thine, thine only, thine holy, thine forever. Lord, what wilt thou have me do? It is not possible for us to accept Christ as Savior unless he also becomes our King. For a very large part of salvation consists in our being saved from sin's dominion over us. And the only way in which we can be delivered from the mastery of Satan is by becoming subject to the mastery of Christ. If it were possible for sin to be forgiven, and yet for the sinner to live just as he lived before, he would not really be saved. So there are results that are certain in the life of a saved individual because of the power of grace now in the believer's life. Again, there are results that are certain in the life of a saved individual because of the power of grace that is now in his life. As we've been seeing for some time, a saved person is a changed person because he has a new heart from God. A supernatural change has taken place in the true believer. So at this point, allow me to share some points that came up over a year ago in our series called The Wonderful Results of Saving Faith. And if you remember, we talked about invisible results as well as visible results of saving faith. And regarding sin, here's what we concluded on the board. The wonderful results of saving faith. We will all sin, but the heart of a believer is seen in his repentant attitude and his overall desire for the things of God. The same Apostle Paul who judged the so-called brother in 1 Corinthians 5, if you remember, Paul questioned his salvation even because he was boasting in his sin. He was boasting in his sin, the opposite of repentance. So the same Apostle Paul who judged the so-called brother in 1 Corinthians 5 is the same man who struggled with his own sin in Romans 7. But Paul's genuine faith in the Lord is revealed in his desire to do the things of God, even though he failed at times. Let me go over this again, because I think this is a really important thing to understand. We're all going to sin. Every believer is going to sin till the day we die. We're stuck in this flesh. But the heart of the believer is different than the unbeliever who just goes on in sin without any repentance in his heart. The heart of a believer is seen in his repentant attitude and his overall desire for the things of God. That's what you see in Romans 7. You see Paul confessing his sin, if you will, talking about his battle with sin, but his desire was to do the things of God. He wasn't happy about his sin, you see, because he had a new heart. The unbeliever doesn't have a new heart. So again, we all sin, but the heart of a believer is seen in his repentant attitude and his overall desire for the things of God. 
the same Apostle Paul who judged the so-called brother in 1 Corinthians 5 because he was boasting is the same man that struggled with his own sin in Romans 7. But the difference is you can see Paul's faith. His genuine faith in the Lord is revealed in his desire to do the things of God, even though he failed at times. Also, we saw that sin is not something the true believer can rest in. Sin is not something the true believer can rest in without his conscience being affected. If he can rest in sin and even boast about it, it's a sign that he may have the old heart and not a new heart from Christ. And then the salvation of a person is in question if he continually lives in sin without a clash of conscience. See 1 Corinthians 5, the entire book of 1 John and James. In fact, John said the difference between the believer and unbeliever was obvious in 1 John chapter 3. And as the Lord said, you will know them by their fruits. And part of that fruit is the believer's attitude towards sin. They now have a repentant heart, like Paul did in Romans 7, as opposed to the possibly unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 5. So on Sunday, we saw how people stumble because they don't want to submit to the Lord and admit that they need Him for salvation. They especially don't want to submit. Let's go again to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. And see the rock of offense. Again, many people stumble over the truth of the gospel because they don't want to submit to anybody. Romans 9.30 What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So people taking credit, trying to earn their way with God, will stumble over the rock. They almost don't want to hear it. They want to take credit on their own somehow. Why? They might just think they're just good enough on their own, like the Pharisees. And this is a disease that plagues many of us and many people in our geographical location. Have you ever met someone that said they believe in Jesus? All right, follow me here. Because we're talking about when the Bible says someone believed, right? Have you ever met someone that said they believe in Jesus, but then when further discussed, they say they believe God will take them to heaven because they're a good person? I'm sure every hand would go up if we asked on that one. Doesn't this reveal that they have not trusted in Christ for their salvation? 
that they've trusted in themselves for their salvation? And doesn't the Bible say it's one or the other? Didn't Jesus say it's one or the other? If you trusted in Christ to save you, then why are you trusting in your good works to let you into heaven? In my opinion, they have not trusted in Christ the Savior. They don't realize what that means. So it's one or the other, as the Lord himself made clear. Jesus told us to deny ourselves and follow him. Deny what? Ourselves. That self part of you that thinks you just might be okay on your own. We can't have it both ways, kind of like the rich man wanted to have it both ways. And again, this is one of our battles in this area, in this geographical location. Unless someone denies that self is good enough, then he will never truly believe in Christ for salvation. He will never follow him, but stay stuck relying on his own goodness. That's why I'm worried about some people's salvation in this area, you know, especially in a large denomination over here. Because when questioned further, after they say they believe in Jesus, they say, well, I'm a good person. I think uh, God's going to let me in. And you basically might as well just said, well, I don't really think I need to trust in Christ to save myself because I'm a good person. So I obviously worry about someone's salvation like that. They don't realize that they're still trusting in self. They're not denying self. So the following point on the board is very important, and we're going to read it slowly. It came up Sunday because it affects all of us representing the Lord with honor and in truth. Regarding the rock of offense, Jesus Christ, the rock, is only offensive to those who reject him. To the rest, he's Lord and Savior. If a believer speaks of him and others are offended, the believer ought not shrink away or seek approval some other way, for he does not have the right to misrepresent the sovereign Lord. Again, if a believer speaks of him and others are offended, the believer ought not shrink away or seek approval some other way, for he does not have the right to misrepresent the sovereign Lord. Our flesh loves to compromise and give in. Our flesh wants to say it's okay to do it another way so that we can have peace with somebody who's not happy with what we're saying. But if you're going to have integrity, you're going to give the gospel and not back down from it, despite the fact that people are not going to like you, that you're going to be unpopular. It's not our destiny to back down or to, as the point says on the board, seek approval some other way, get on their good side. You know, you know how we like to change the subject even just to soften the blow. Why would we want to soften the blow of the fullness of the gospel, making sure they understand the whole situation? And if they want to reject it, that's their problem. Even the Lord said that members of the same household would be at odds over the gospel, mother against daughter-in-law, 
son against father, son-in-law against father-in-law, etc., etc. Why? All because of the gospel, standing up for the truth. Jesus told the truth because he loved people, and he didn't compromise. He didn't compromise the change of heart that was needed to be saved. I mean, again, we've, we went over this quite a bit in different ways, but how many times did people push the crowd away? Did Jesus push the crowd away? Did he challenge them and say, you know, if you really want to follow me, okay, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then we'll see if you want to follow me. He, he was testing their faith. He was realizing that not all that those people following him were following him for the right reasons. And so if he pushed people away, even with hard sayings at times, we need to be willing to stand up for that whole truth of the gospel. He didn't compromise the change of heart that was needed to be saved, that someone needed to turn from self and sin and turn to him in humility if they were going to be saved. So we've been called in this ministry to understand the full gospel. And the Lord is showing us how to avoid watering it down, to tell the whole story of the gospel, the one that demands him as both Lord and Savior. We saw on Sunday a different gospel. The flesh's basic tendency is to reject authority. Since the gospel includes the lordship of Jesus Christ, the flesh will reject him as Lord, but keep him as Savior. Since the latter portion is perceived as not requiring basic submission. The result is a divided Jesus, and therefore a perverted gospel. And the wonderful results from God's grace are part of that gospel. God's grace in the life of a believer, in other words, is going to produce something because it's supernaturally powerful. God never fails. Grace is God's power changing us from the inside out. So as we heard on Sunday, as we read our, read our Bibles in context, what do we see? The Bible says that a true believer will persist in love for Jesus while an apostate will fall away. I mean, that's all throughout the scripture, that concept. The Bible says that a true believer will bear fruit while an unbeliever cannot. So the fullness of grace in the believer's life produces wonderful results that cannot be helped. They are certain and guaranteed, such as our sanctification. So when you hear the word grace, you know, think of power. That might not be the first thing we think of, but think of power. Think of God's supernatural power in changing a wretch like you and me. Grace says God doesn't just save us, but that he will complete the good work in us. That's all part of the grace bestowed upon the believer at salvation. But man wants half of God's grace. That's really what we've been learning. He wants half of God's grace so he can live for self without being accountable to Jesus as King and Lord. Didn't Jesus say, deny self and follow me? 
But the man that wants half of God's grace wants to live for self. Just keep his own thing going on the side and believe in Jesus just in case. And that, my friend, is not a believer. That's not someone who has surrendered to Christ, admitting the full need they have. Man wants grace to be a license to live however he wants, rather than to be changed and be set free from the bondage of sin. Because that's what grace really does. If grace is God's power in us, then we will be set free from the bondage of sin, even experientially. And again, that doesn't mean believers don't sin afterwards. It's talking about the bondage to sin. The same lifestyle, the same unrepentant lifestyle that we had as believers. The heart changes because of grace and the life changes following that. So here's what's going on today with the watered-down gospel, especially in our own country. And we saw this on Sunday. Understand God's grace. Scriptural grace says, For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Matthew 7.14 Today's false grace goes something like this. The gate is big, many are saved, but the way is narrow. Only a few of those saved will submit to the Lord, if they want to, like it's optional. We cannot find scripture to support the false grace of today. That system of thinking is an easy way out to hedge bets to keep someone's life the same as it was, to have it both ways. It's not really trusting in Christ as Lord. Again, regarding a different gospel, today's Christian evangelist tells everyone that God loves them so much that he'll forego his own integrity and save them without submitting them to Jesus Christ as Lord. Almost like God won't follow through. You know? Of course he's going to follow through. If he's going to save you, he's going to save you. Again, today's Christian evangelist tells everyone that God loves them so much that he'll forego his own integrity and save them without submitting them to Jesus Christ as Lord. And for us to ask people to make Christ Savior without broaching the subject that He's also their Lord, that's kind of like a cop-out when giving the gospel. That's taking the easy way out, and it's also dishonest. We need to lay it all on the line when we're giving the gospel. And that's why it's a bold gospel. That's why Paul, when he preached the gospel, was a bold gospel. That's why the apostles in Acts... When they gave the gospel, it was a bold declaration. And guess what made it so bold? Not just the fact that God loves you and he wants to save you, that you need to repent. You're out of line, and unless you repent, you're not going to be saved. So that's the gospel, that's the, the bold gospel that God wants us to be armed with, to be equipped with, to stop dancing around and tell, telling people what they want to hear so if we don't offend them enough, then they'll say they accept Jesus. Well, what good is that? If they're doing it as a just-in-case, or they're doing it to make you happy, they're doing it because they think it's an easy way out, when they're not really surrendering to Christ as they need to.
it comes back to the question too, do people realize who Jesus Christ really is? And I think when we give the gospel, we can do a better job of that. We assume people know who Jesus is when we say his name. That's a big mistake. For example, a lot of people don't even know he's Lord God in the flesh. So we need to make sure people know Jesus is Lord also, not just Savior. And without repentance, people won't arrive at the faith necessary for salvation. I'm convinced of that now, where I didn't understand that a couple of years ago. Without repentance, people won't arrive at the faith necessary for salvation. They will just have a half-hearted acceptance of Jesus as Savior, just in case. It sounds good, and I don't have to commit. Like, it's easy. Like, all right, I'm in. Oh, really? You're in? <laughs> you mean with that one foot over the fence, tipping your, your, your toe in the water? That's not jumping in the boat to be saved from the flood, if you remember Pastor's booklet. That's not what Jesus intended. And that's not how Jesus gave the gospel. So again, without repentance, people won't arrive at the faith necessary for salvation. They will just have a half-hearted acceptance of Jesus as Savior, just in case. And as we know, God looks at the heart. So regarding the perverted grace gospel, we saw this on Sunday. People love an emasculated God because they can, in their sinful natures, dominate him. This is sin's desire, remember. Crouching at the door, Teshuka. Sin and grace are enemies. Sinful man cannot accept all of God's grace without becoming completely dependent and subordinate to the Lord. I really like this explanation from Spurgeon revealing the state of a surrendered heart on the board. A man who is really saved by grace does not need to be told that he is under solemn obligations to serve Christ. The new life within him tells him that. If the Holy Spirit is in you, is he going to remain quiet? Does he not have the power to convict you? You already gave him permission when you surrendered to Christ, when you, when you trusted in Christ for salvation. You gave him permission to take over your soul. If it's true that he lives inside of you, is it possible that you wouldn't even have any convictions about serving Christ? Again, Spurgeon said, A man who is really saved by grace does not need to be told that he is under solemn obligations to serve Christ. The new life within him tells him that. Instead of regarding it as a burden, he gladly surrenders himself, body, soul, and spirit to the Lord who has redeemed him, reckoning this to be his reasonable service. His reasonable service. That's the humble, truthful perspective. Anything we do, even things that we think are us going above and beyond, we're just unworthy slaves. That's just our reasonable service for the master and the king and the savior. 
but the new life within him will tell him. <laughs> you need to serve Christ. Let's not waste our lives away here. Let's be real. There's a conviction, there's a new heart in the believer that will be revealed in the life of the believer. The believer will be grateful for the Lord's salvation and redemption and therefore want to serve him and follow him. And what is that? Is that, uh, is that a human will issue? Is that you forcing it? Or is it the result of a heart that was truly changed by Christ himself? On the board, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. If you believe that God, by grace, will make you saved, then you must also believe that God, by grace, will make you subordinate to Christ. Therefore, be careful what you believe, for not all believing is the same or godly. Scripture tells us what God accomplishes in the believer at salvation, and we have no right to say anything to the contrary. We have no right to say that it will be anything less than God's completed work in us. The wonderful results of saving faith in a believer's life includes surrender, in other words. Because the believer realizes Jesus is Lord. He's not just Savior. And if those results aren't there, if there's not an attitude of surrender, then maybe some people believed in the wrong thing in a gospel that accommodated their selfish desires. We've seen several scriptures where people said, believe, or it, they were said to have believed, but there's no evidence of salvation in the picture. And that's what we're exploring right now, and just, just randomly going through some scriptures, keeping them in context. So what did certain people believe if there's no salvation in the picture or in the context? Go to John 2, verse 23. Let's revisit a couple main passages in John from Sunday. And we're realizing what we're learning more and more and more is the importance of context and how that's what we rely on to see the truth of a matter in the scripture. It's not, you know, word studies, for example. It's not assuming all definitions are the same when the context says something different. So John 2.23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Now, Pastor mentioned on Sunday about clinging to favorite words and phrases and how we can't automatically assume certain conclusions when we see them in Scripture, even like the word believe. The Spirit's been steering us away from reliance on that system of thinking, and He's showing us reliance on context for truth. So on the board, regarding flawed interpretation, word and phrase association is not a fail-proof method of interpreting scripture. That's the simple point. It's not a fail-proof method of interpreting scripture. In fact, many have gone astray by assuming words and phrases always mean the same thing, regardless of context. 
And this is also true with the word believing. We also saw on Sunday, not all believing is the same. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all believing is godly. In fact, the Bible depicts man's heart as utterly deceitful. And the Lord knew this, and he taught his disciples to be alert and discern such things in others. And this is why scripture warns us to be aware of false brethren infiltrating the churches. And guess what false brethren do if you ask them? If you ask a false brethren who might be in your church if they believe, what are they going to say? Probably yes, right? Unless they're really flying under the radar and sneaking in, right? And they're totally doing it, obviously. You ask a false brethren if he believes, he's going to say yes. He doesn't want to rock the boat, maybe. You know, maybe he's shaken in his heart, uncertain in his heart of his own faith, but he doesn't want to show it. So he's going to say, yeah. If the other apostles asked Judas Iscariot if he believed in Christ, what do you think he would have said? So, in other words, like, don't be surprised. Don't expect a false believer to show himself, obviously. You know what I mean? Unless, except by fruits. But it's not going to be in the words, and it might, he might even use the word believe. And that was exactly what Jesus taught. If you think about it, on the board, Jesus is the one who taught his disciples to look for true signs of saving faith that comes from or comes as a result of godly believing. He's like, don't assume. Don't even take people's word for it. I don't, Jesus said. I mean, I, I tested people's faith to, make, to let them see and check themselves. If you believe me, follow me. If you don't believe me, then you're not going to follow me. So again, the Lord sets the stage for us in John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Very interesting passage. This came up months ago, by the way, in our lessons, if you remember. Jesus was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, including the ones that supposedly believed here. Now let's go back to John chapter 8, where we see Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees. And let's take special notice of where we see the word believe and the results in context. Let's start in John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's another sign, if you will. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. On the board, it matters what you believe. Jesus stated that those who believed in him True believers would walk in the light. John 8, 12. And we also saw 1 John 1, 6 and 7 on Sunday. Jesus stated that those who believed in him, true believers would walk in the light. 
just like Jesus said, my sheep, they hear my voice, they know my voice, and they follow me. In other words, that's what my sheep do. They follow me. So then we see those that are in the darkness have a different type of faith according to the flesh. John 8, verse 15. Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. On the board. Judge according to the flesh. Jesus stated the root of the Pharisees' belief, which was the flesh. And the flesh cannot be godly. In fact, it cannot even appraise its own depravity. It doesn't suppose it's actually even depraved. So they trusted in the flesh. They believed in the flesh. The flesh doesn't even suppose it's depraved. Think about that. And if that's true, and the flesh is in denial of its own unworthiness, then it has faith in itself as being good enough, for example. The Pharisees, they relied on their knowledge of the scriptures to please God even to earn their way to salvation. And that's why they stumbled on the rock. They were relying on themselves instead of realizing they, realizing they needed saving. And this scripture on the board, this cuts to the heart of the matter for religious people, even today. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, the person. Some people, even today, trust in their knowledge of Scripture instead of trusting in Jesus himself. Something to think about. Let's continue with the Lord's conversation with the deceived religious people in John 8, 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, be careful what you believe. The Pharisees were believing the wrong thing or in the wrong thing. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, Pharisees, you might believe right now, or what you believe right now, has you deceived. Jesus told them they must believe in him as Lord and Savior, the great I Am, the Messiah from the Old Testament. Unless they believed the whole of that, they were denying who he truly was, which was the great I Am, which is God in the flesh. So on the board, unless you believe that I am he, Jesus made the absolute distinction that belief must be in his person, that I am he. He wasn't refuting knowledge of scripture. He was explaining the chasm between knowing of him and actually knowing him. Just think of people that rely on knowledge to puff them up and to impress people and they think that in that they have salvation 
when they're really doing it for their own selfish reasons. There's a great difference between knowing of Jesus or about Jesus and actually knowing him, the person. Or put another way, there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually embracing his person. We see this on the streets all the time, honestly, when given the gospel. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually embracing his person as Lord and Savior. So here's a key principle that we must acknowledge as a reality, even when we're out there giving the gospel to people on the board, believing in the Bible. Just because the word believe or its derivatives shows up in Scripture does not mean all believing is the same. To the contrary, Scripture contextualizes different beliefs of which two categories arise. There's belief in Jesus Christ, the true Lord and Savior, or there's some other belief, including unbelief in Him, because they just believe in the facts about Him or His office, not the person. In other words, a personal trusting faith in the person of Christ is necessary for salvation not an acknowledgement of facts about him without trusting and surrendering to him as Lord and Savior. Do you see the difference? And this is, some of this is rehashed, you know, even from our last series on the gospel. But the more the Spirit brings us up and the slightly different ways the Spirit is bringing it to us, he's, again, conforming our souls to his way of thinking. So again, a personal trusting faith in the person of Christ is necessary for salvation, not an acknowledgement of the facts about him without a trusting surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and actually embracing his person. Let me ask you a question. If someone tells you they believe in Jesus, Do you stop there and assume they are saved? It's an easy thing to do. Because once you hear those words, I believe in Jesus, that's kind of like the magic words, isn't it? (laughs) Isn't that what you're waiting to hear? You're hoping to hear? So you hear it and you're like, you want to jump, you know, in, in excitement or gratitude or whatever. But let's take this a step further. Have you ever had someone say they believe in Jesus, but then, with more conversation, come to find out they think he was just a good man and not God himself in the flesh? Are they saved? You know, the Bible says you can believe in another Jesus. He, the Bible says, believe in him as Lord, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So this person that just told you they believe in Jesus and you could have stopped there and walked away and assumed they were saved and thought there was no fight to be had there for his soul, that person who just believes in him as a good man is not saved unless they trust in him as Lord and Savior. That's what the Bible says over and over many different ways. And we got to be careful in real life too 
not just looking at the context of our passages in the Bible before we make a conclusion, but in real life, the same thing applies. So someone can accept a false gospel, like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, he was a good man, just like all the other guys, Buddha, Muhammad, or whoever they want to start listing. They believed in another Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. But they said they believed in Jesus, didn't they? So, even worse, somebody possibly ensured them that they were saved. Hopefully not you. Hopefully not anymore. I don't know about you, but I'm done with that. Where, you know, <coughs> excuse me, you, you give someone confidence. That, oh, yeah, you're saved. You're going to heaven. Before you even know what they really believe. And now they think they're all set. They're not even aware. They don't know the... The, the true gospel. So all we can do is communicate the truth clearly and fully and let the Spirit do the convicting and the saving. Let the Spirit do the convicting and the saving. When like Peter in the, in the Acts chapter 2 and 3, right? He gave the gospel to his brethren. He said, repent, right? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, etc., and 2,000 people believed, 3,000 people believed and followed him. So did, did Peter like say, all right, stop the presses. Let me let you know that you're all set now, you're saved. Was that his job, in other words? Or did the Holy Spirit do that in the people that accepted him and they automatically followed him because they were changed? See what I mean? It, what's our job? Our job is to communicate the truth clearly and fully and not worry about keeping score or, or encouraging someone that they're saved when you don't really know what's going on in their heart. It's not our job. Let's not assume anybody's saved. Let's give the truth, and you know what? Give the truth more after that. And you know what? Make them a disciple and keep teaching them, them truth and get them baptized. Then we'll see if they're saved. Isn't that basically what Jesus did? So let's not hang our hats on a phrase or a word and assume people are saved. Let's keep things in context. On the board, regarding believing in real life, just like we shouldn't hang on a phrase in the Bible as always meaning the same thing, we shouldn't hang on a person's words equaling salvation in their heart just because we hear them say a certain phrase, such as I believe. And this is where relationships in the Bible come alive. Because these same interactions can be had by all of us that happened 2,000 years ago with Jesus and the apostles. And we should guard against the mistake of assuming people are saved. In fact, how about testing their faith? Giving them the opportunity to go forward and follow the Lord. Jesus didn't assume anything. Look at John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So here we see on the board evidence, more evidence of a true believer, freedom through persistence. 
Jesus stated that a true believer in Christ would continue in his word and be set free. In other words, the Lord challenged their belief, so to speak. He didn't get in their face and say, do you really believe? Huh? Do you really believe? No, he said, okay. You say you believe? Wonderful. Come with me. Follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. You know? Give people the opportunity to follow through on their faith. I don't know the right way to say it. But let them realize it's real. And if they walk away, then you know you have the gospel to, to give to that person. The Lord challenged their belief, so to speak. If you say you believe, or you say you believe, if you do, this is what will come about in your life. No question about it, because the Spirit is now at work in your heart. Unless, of course, He isn't. 1 Corinthians 13.5, unless you fail the test. So the Lord again challenges the faith that the Pharisees claim to have in John 8.39. Look at verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. On the board. What the Pharisees didn't comprehend was that Abraham believed in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament. John 5.39, John 8.56. And therefore, he did good deeds as fruit of God-given faith. Romans 4, 3 through 5. Good deeds are the inevitable results of being born of the Spirit and receiving the heart of Christ. The Pharisees were playing a game in name only. They loved having Abraham's name associated to them as though Abraham were the Savior. Go to Romans 4.3. Let's see this again. <clears throat> For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, there's godly faith in view, is credited as righteousness. And that credited righteousness that Abraham received, it results in something divinely good in the believer's life. And we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about some degree of good fruit being guaranteed in the believer's life. And that's why Jesus has said to the Pharisees, okay, you're, you, he's your father, then do the deeds of Abraham. The new nature is perfect, and it cannot help but produce good fruit. So let's close out our review of Sunday by going back to the parable of parables in Luke 8, verse 11. Luke 8, 11. We'll see how far we get here. This is, this is really a crucial part of our study, I think, especially regarding this parable. Luke 8, 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. 
Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes away and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. On the board, we saw Matthew's version of the rocky soil in Matthew 13, 20. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Notice another favorite word that some people cling to as automatically meaning salvation, and that is the word receive. You can see the word receive in, in both Luke 8.13 and in Matthew 13.20. Turn in your Bibles for a minute to uh, John 1, verse 12. John 1, 12 and 13. So again, we've got to look at context. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in context here, we have those who received him were saved. As verse 13 says, they were born of God, right? So in this passage, those who received him were saved, they were born of God, wonderful. You might think anytime you see this word receive, that it means the same thing, or it means salvation, but that would be an assumption unless we stick with context. So look at Matthew 13 again on the board. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So this person receives it with joy, but it's only temporary, pointing to a lack of true saving faith. How do we know that? Well, we saw on Sunday by comparing Scripture. So go to Mark chapter 4, verse 14. Mark 4, 14. And this is the third uh, selection of the parable of parables. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they heard the word, immediately receive it with joy. So on the board, we saw this on Sunday in a similar way in Mark 4.16. Jesus implies that this second class of people fall into the same category as the first, namely unconverted unbelievers. Even though for a time they believed for a while, as Luke said, or they received it with joy, but it was temporary. Look at Mark 4.17. 
and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. There we see no persistence. So again, since we're focusing on difficult passages, we're focused on the second category of person in Jesus' parable of the soils. Go again to Luke 8.13. Luke 8.13. Should have told you to hold your thumb, huh? Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in, in time of temptation, fall away. No persistence means no saving faith. Look at verse 14. The seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. On the board, regarding the parable of the soils, what Scripture tells us is that if a person has true faith as a result of godly belief in Jesus Christ, they will bear evidence of that result. Thirty-fold, sixty-fold, a hundred-fold. For example, Luke eight fourteen, They will bear evidence of that result. True faith actually persists. That's what true faith does because the Holy Spirit is alive in them. So the believer will persist in doing good, at least to some degree. And remember this point, as we note the difference between the saved and the unsaved on the board. Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, if you believe that God by grace will make you saved, then you must also believe that God by grace will make you subordinate to Christ. Therefore, be careful what you believe, for not all believing is the same or godly. In fact, Jesus states in this parable of the sower that those who are saved will bear good fruit with perseverance. Look at Luke 8:15. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Not temporary like verse 13, which is also similar to unbelievers according to Mark 4. We just visited those. They will bear fruit with perseverance. In this verse, representing true believers, we also see people that are willing to hear. Right? Again, look at verse 15. These are the ones who have heard the word. And how do they hear? with an honest and good heart. So here again, as we've seen the last couple of years, heart issues come up on the board. Regarding Luke 8.15, these people are not playing a religious game and are not hedging their bets just in case, but they have humbled themselves before Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And the results of someone truly doing that thing is what you see in verse 15. 
they bear fruit with perseverance. Again, Luke 8, 15. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Hopefully, by comparing the three versions of this same parable, we see with clarity the distinctions between believers and unbelievers. And we learn to never assume people are saved even if they have an immediate positive response. This is one reason to have an ongoing relationship with somebody who might not actually be saved yet, but just is still seeking, maybe. I think of a, a young man named Rex, who's one of Michael's new friends, and he's listening, he's starting to read his Bible and all that, but he's still seeking. He's not there yet. And that's one reason to follow up with people in an ongoing relationship, just like we're commanded. Huh. I wonder why Jesus didn't say, go out into the world and, you know, drop a bunch of salvation tracts. And whoever accepts it, let him be. Why did he say, make disciples, help them move forward with Christ in water baptism, teach them to obey all the Lord's commands? You never know at what stage someone truly surrenders to Christ. And so we, as faithful followers of the Lord, persist in bringing somebody along with grace and love and teaching them the ways of Christ. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful truth, the honest truth from your word and from your son's own lips. We ask that you help us understand these things, help us reconcile these truths in our hearts so that we can be bold with your gospel and honest and true in helping people believe and also follow your son so that they may be saved by trusting faith in his person. Father, we ask that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.